0: Hi everyone, Laszlo Montgomery here again, bringing you another China History Podcast. Today we continue our overview of the life of Deng Xiaoping and pick up in the year 1937. If there ever was a year from Chinese history that will forever live on in infamy, Yijiu San Nian, 1937. That was one for the history books. In the last episode, we looked at the early formative years of Deng Xiaoping, In this series of podcasts focusing on the life of Deng, we're looking mainly at Ezra Vogel's new biography that came out last month. We reviewed the early years of Deng Xiaoping, where he came from, his years in France and Moscow, and then back in China, surviving the long march, and now in January 1937, after the communists have started to set themselves up in Yan'an, the legend of Deng Xiaoping really starts to gain momentum. As we'll see, uh, Deng Xiaoping, like all of China's leaders at this time, he had a lot on his hands. He is in it up to his eyeballs in the whole war of resistance against the Japanese. We know from previous podcasts that Zhou Yiba, 918, September 18th, 1931, the Mukden incident, the infamous incident that went down in the city of Mukden, which we know today as Shenyang, this incident was the ham-fisted pretext used by the Japanese to invade Manchuria which of course gave us Manchukuo and now in the year 1937 with the Marco Polo Bridge incident on July 7th 1937 now Japan has launched a full-scale invasion of China into the heartland so Deng Xiaoping is going to be caught up in all that as well as other things. The city of Tianjin falls on July 30th. Wusong, which is present-day Baoshan, is taken on September 1st. And Shanghai held out till December, and there was huge and tragic losses during the siege of Shanghai. The Japanese then set up a blockade along the east coast that provided further inconvenience to the nationalists. Then their capital, Nanjing, is taken, and we, of course have the Nanjing Massacre that takes place on December 13th and the weeks that followed. And that sort of caps off a very bloody and tumultuous year in China. The nationalist government is forced to retreat and sets up a temporary government in the city of Chongqing, far, far away from their base of power along the eastern part of China. Japanese army then spreads itself out into Shandong and Henan for the rest of 1937-1938. Wuhan fell to the Japanese on October 25th, 1938, after a million Chinese soldiers went down fighting. Four days before, on October 21st, Guangzhou was taken. One of the only cities to hold out repeatedly against the Japanese onslaught was Changsha in Hunan. KMT General Xue Yue and Chen Cheng are credited with that effort. Deng, you see, although no one could say anything about his military credentials, he, he was always right there when the bullets were flying. But he was really a political operator, and we'll see this in a moment. Okay, last time the Long March had finished up officially, on October twenty second, 1936. Then exactly two months later, we have the Xi'an incident. Jiang Kai-shek is kidnapped and is more or less forced into signing a deal with Mao to form a second United Front. Trustee Zhou Enlai was given the mission to negotiate this whole deal with Chiang's people. And in April nineteen thirty seven it's all worked out, and now these strange bedfellows once again are going to Yi Chi to work together to push the Japanese out of China. This whole unfortunate invasion that happened during the summer of nineteen thirty seven was truly Bad luck for Chiang Kai-shek. He was arguably well on his way to marginalizing the communist forces. So just when he had the momentum, he had the rug pulled out from under him. And then Japan, of course, the Chinese are still more than six decades later, still pointing at this time in history and shaking their fists at Japan. So only one single clear political winner from this whole Japanese invasion in 1937. And that was, of course, Mao Zedong and the political and military force that he led. One thing that came about from all this was the creation of the Eighth Route Army, the Ba Lu Jun. It was headquartered in Shanxi, east of Yan'an. This force carried out regular attacks against the Japanese, causing them endless grief and hardship. And the man charged with carrying out these attacks and to push the Japanese eastward as far away from Yan'an as possible was the immortal, one-eyed Sichuan native Liu Bocheng. The 8th Route Army had three divisions. Liu was put in charge of the 129th. And who was his commissar, his chief political officer? Yes, none other than Deng Xiaoping. And these two, Liu and Deng, Mao put them together, and they worked as partners in the Taihang Mountain region to put as much heat on the Japanese as possible. And these two guys, both from the province of Sichuan, they were political allies all the way through the entirety of their lives. And it was there, on the Shanxi side of the Taihang Mountains, that Deng ran his operation. The lives of tens of thousands of ordinary people who eked out an existence in that area were all part of Deng's responsibility. He had to win their trust, get them on his side, and recruit as many as possible, and administer and mobilize the whole area. And all the while, of course, evade the Japanese and try to stay alive. Deng had learned some hard lessons from his Guangxi failures. He was a wiser, more experienced man this time. In this relationship in the 129th, Deng was the first party secretary and Liu was the second party secretary. So the way it works with the communists, even though Liu had the superior military rank, he was still below Deng. But regardless of who worked for who, Deng Xiaoping and Liu Bocheng worked seamlessly as one. Deng, the party man, facilitator, organizer, negotiator, not only managing day-to-day tasks and making decisions on the fly, but carefully laying the foundation for an entire country that he knew was sooner rather than later going to be under CCP control. And Liu Cheng, although maybe not as famous a character from modern Chinese history, he nonetheless was a legendary military commander and a tireless revolutionary. And like Deng, Zhou Enlai, Liu Shaoqi, Lin Biao, Chen Yi, and others, Liu Bocheng had thrown his lot in with Mao early. He was one of the many great leaders and generals who Mao surrounded himself with, and he was very effective as a military man. And by the way, one last Liu Bocheng fun fact. When Mao stood on the podium on National Liberation Day, October 1st, 1949, it was Liu Bocheng who stood next to Mao when that iconic moment in history took place. So take my word for it, a very big guy. He was one of the 10 marshals, the 10 biggest military men from the generation that defeated the Nationalists and battled to establish the PRC. Besides Liu Bocheng, you had, of course, Peng DeHuai, Zhu De, Lin Biao, Nia Rongzhen, He Long, Chen Yi, Luo Ronghuan, Xu Xiangqian, and the man who plays a huge role later on in the life of Deng Xiaoping, Marshal Ye Jianying. This was Mao's A-Team, those ten guys. Deng had to make regular trips in between the Taihang Mountain region, and the headquarters in Yan'an. He made several perilous trips back and forth. And on one of these trips, visiting the headquarters, Deng married his third wife. And this was the saintly Zhuolin. This was a 58-year partnership. I mean, it was more than just a marriage. She was the mother to all of Deng's five children. And theirs was a legendary marriage within the CCP leadership, Lin, of course, she's going to be coming in and out of our story as we trace the life of Deng Xiaoping. She came from Yunnan province, and her father had made a fortune in the Yunnan ham business. Yunnan is famous for these Xuanwei hams. Anyway, he was later killed during land reform. But Zhuolin and her sisters, they all attended universities and were educated and sufficiently radicalized, whereby they became early sympathizers and later members of the Communist Party. Zuo Lin was 12 years younger than Deng. They had a lovely marriage. I don't know who officiated. Mao, I guess. It took place in front of Mao's cave in Yan'an. And present at the wedding ceremony were Zhou Enlai, Liu Shaoqi, Li Fuchun, and of course Mao and others. They built an amazing family, but you'll see Deng keeps them completely out of the political arena. And they are always his source of solace to come home to after a day of enduring this glorious burden that he carried every day of his life. Deng and Liu Bocheng, as I said, really made things hard for the Japanese in central China. But still, Mao's KMT cousins were still moaning about the magnitude of their contribution to the war effort versus that of the Red Army. So as a result, we have the Hundreds Regiments campaign, the Bai Tuan Dazhan, This all fell under the military leadership of Peng De from August 20th to September 10th, 1940. They hit the Japanese hard, just blowing up whatever infrastructure they could. Roads, railway, bridges, mines, whatever, wherever. And the damage Peng's troops and artillery caused was considerable. In fact, it was so considerable... And so successfully had they dealt the Japanese war effort, a crippling blow, that between October and December 1940, the infamous Three Alls policy was carried out. The Sanquan Juntsu, Japan's general, Okomuro Yasuchi, led this effort, and to put it succinctly, it was a real nasty, scorched earth policy. Japan just took the gloves off and went on a massive rampage and inflicted a horrible amount of suffering on all the Chinese in and around the poor provinces of Shanxi, Shanxi, Hebei, Shandong, and parts of inner Mongolia. It was simply brutal. So it was a cold, brutal winter between 1940 and 1941. The three alls, by the way, were kill all, burn all, and loot all. The officers just Said to the troops, do whatever you want to do. No holds barred. And the Japanese soldiers, they were always getting harassed by Chinese guerrilla fighters. So they were always in a boil about something and were quick to seek retribution. January 1941, the new Fourth Army incident happens. There's two versions of what happened, the communist and the nationalist version. But suffice to say, by this time, the phony cooperation that had been in place since the Xi'an incident was all cast aside, and from here on out, and especially after Japan's defeat in 1945, it's all out fisticuffs between the forces led by Chiang Kai-shek and by Mao Zedong. By the time of Japan's defeat... In the summer of 1945, Deng was in the highest layer of leadership in the CCP. The area where Deng held sway after the war covered a few hundred million people. This was in and around Hebei, Shanxi, Shandong, and Henan. This was Deng Xiaoping's territory, and he did superbly, winning over the hearts and minds of the locals wherever they went. The next major milestone in Deng's life was perhaps July 1947, when he and his partner all these years, Liu Bocheng, they were sent south by Mao to the Dabian mountain area, sort of where Henan and Hubei sort of come together. It's a nice-sized little mountain range in the central plain of China. If Deng and Liu could establish a foothold in these mountains... It would then offer them the ultimate vantage point looking over the plains and could also serve as the perfect base of operations from which to invade the Yangtze River regions. As history records, this plan turned out to be an utter disaster at first and nothing went according to plan and they underestimated the terrain as well as the ferocity of the nationalist forces. So, long story short, it turned into one of those forced retreats, and Deng and Liu, both of these guys actually led much of the march to safety on foot themselves, and as the story goes, inspired their men with whatever was necessary. So, what could have been an utter and complete disaster was averted by the quick thinking and leadership of Deng Xiaoping and Liu Bocheng. They did come to occupy the Dapian Mountains in the end, and thanks to Deng and Liu pulling through in the clutch... It gave the communist army a little bit of a breather. Now, instead of throwing everything he had at the communists in the north, now Jiang had to divert resources to go after Deng and Liu's forces. And sure enough, most critical of all, the occupation of the Tapia Mountains gave the communist army the perfect launching pad to carry out the Huaihai campaign. What was the Huaihai campaign? Between the end of 1948 and the end of January 1949, there were three main military campaigns that provided the final knockout punches to the nationalist armies. The nationalists were put away by three brilliant campaigns. Really, these five, six months really decided everything. These were the Huaihai campaign, the Huaihai Hai campaign. November 1948 to January 1949. And this was led by Liu Bocheng, Su Yu, and Chen Yi. This essentially busted the Yangtze River region wide open to the communist forces. When the last battle was fought, it was all over for Jiang. The second campaign was the Liaoshan, September 12th, 1948 to November 2nd. This was the campaign led by Lin Biao. The third was the Ping Jing, also led by Lin Biao. And uh, Liu Ronghuan and Nia Rongzhen. Deng wasn't involved in those two. The Huaihai campaign mostly centered in and around the strategic city of Xuzhou, which is in the southwest of Jiangsu. By car, it's about a half day's journey from Xuzhou to the Shanghai Bund. So I guess you can figure this was a rather important campaign to win. The Huaihai campaign saw six. 100,000 KMT troops square off against half a million communist troops. But the communist troops had a major advantage. They were so damn good at organizing out in the hinterlands. They mobilized over a million peasant workers who did a whole multitude of laborious tasks for them and helped to facilitate the ultimate victory. Mao's man for the campaign, his eyes and ears, was, of course, Deng Xiaoping, and you know the CCP, they had a committee for everything, and it was Deng who was the general secretary of the general frontline committee. Deng was there side by side with Chen Yi when they captured Zhengzhou in October 1948. Then from November 48 to January 49, the combined armies of Liu Bocheng, Chen Yi, and Su Yu annihilated a nationalist army of 500,000. This was one of the greatest, most ferocious land battles of the 20th century. 25 nationalist corps, five armies, 56 divisions, destroyed, all in about 66 days. And as far as the Liaoshan and Pingjing campaigns go, if you throw those two in also and add up all the fallen on the nationalist side, between September 48 and January 49, you're looking at about one and a half million soldiers. This allowed Deng and everyone to cross the Yangtze River. And after taking the nationalist capital, Nanjing, on April twenty-third, 1949, both Deng Xiaoping and Chen Yi sat in Jiang Kai-shek's chair in the presidential palace. They marched into Shanghai and fanned out into Jiangsu and Zhejiang. Beijing had already been taken. By the way, later on in life, Deng mentioned in some interview that on that day, when they had crossed the Yangtze, that dividing line that separates northern China from southern China, that was one of the happiest days of his life. That was it. It was all over by this point. It was just a matter of mopping up and holding their ground. And when it was safe to come out, the entire underground communist movement in Shanghai emerged, and this built-in support network awaited Deng when he entered Shanghai. By this point, the United States, Jiang's biggest backer, had turned its back and had thrown in the towel. And we'll come back another day and focus on that very complicated U.S.-China relationship during the 30s and 40s. So Liu Bocheng, he got to stand next to Mao on Tiananmen on that fateful day, and of course Deng was there too, but no rest for the weary. No sooner had this momentous occasion been written into the annals of history when Mao sent Liu and Deng down to the southwest of China. This covered the provinces of Sichuan, Yunnan, Guizhou, and Tibet, and their mission was to pacify the area, which they did by the end of the year. And happily for Deng Xiaoping, you know, being a Sichuan guy and all, he got to go home. And if you remember, he left home at the age of 16 to participate in that work-study program in France in 1920. And this was the first time since then he was going back to Sichuan, the place of his birth. He set up his base in Chongqing, and lived with his brother, Deng Shuping, and his sister, Deng Xianlie, a sister-in-law, and his father's fourth wife. Quite a combination. He was shielding them from what was most likely a grisly fate due to the land reform that was now going on in the countryside. Anyways, Deng was the top guy, and Liu Bocheng was his deputy. Now, while the state was being set up, the government was regionalized under military control. This period lasted from 1949 to 1952. There were six official regions in China. Each region had a bureau, and these regional bureaus had total autonomy. After all, what could the central government do at this point? Even with all the previous organization and planning and preparations, I mean, you had a wholesale change of government. So Mao and all the gang that wasn't out fighting battles, they remained in Beijing and tried to get the government house in order. So as a temporary measure only, they split the country up into six regions and Mao put someone he trusted in charge of each region. And who else could be a better choice for southwest China than Deng Xiaoping and Liu Bocheng, two full-blooded Sichuan人 who spoke the dialect of the region? Actually, Mao did it like this for most of the regions. So now Deng Xiaoping is first secretary of the Southwest Bureau. His job, and in fact the job of all six first secretaries of all these bureaus, was to carry out the following. First, to pacify the area. Although the nationalists had been soundly defeated north of the Yangtze, there were still many pockets of resistance still in the south. They had to manage the transition from... KMT-run bureaucracy and systems to the new CCP-managed systems. They also had to build the party organization, recruit members, and they had to crank up the economy in their respective areas. The Southwest had been totally brought to its knees during almost the entirety of the 20th century up till that time. And Dung also had to juggle the gargantuan tasks of establishing security, Industry, commerce, culture, education, and health. I mean, can you imagine what each day was like for Deng Xiaoping back then? Right after they had taken Chongqing and then Chengdu in November 1949, Jiang Kai-shek on December 10th, 1949, boarded a flight to Taiwan, never to return to the country that he had so many aspirations for. So, Southwest Bureau, Dung is in charge there. There were still a few KMT generals and armies who had holed themselves up there in the mountains of Yunnan, in westernmost Sichuan, and southeastern Tibet. I mean, that area, that terrain is like Afghanistan. You could hide in that rugged terrain forever. And it's right where the Golden Triangle is. So some of these guys, these former KMT generals or warlords who were too landlocked to flee to Taiwan, they sort of got caught up in the moment and couldn't get out or simply decided to stay. And they inevitably got into the opium trade and turned into these opium warlords who controlled the world heroin trade for a while. And besides all this, anyone familiar with China knows most all the minority ethnic peoples of China are located in the southwest. So on top of all the other complications and challenges that Dung faced, he faced the additional special problem the other regions didn't have to deal with in such a concentrated way. It was always tricky to deal with all these non-Han ethnic minority people, most of whom didn't speak Mandarin and had their own distinct culture and customs, and had pretty much kept to themselves, living in their culture. And now here comes these guys with all this communist propaganda and preaching about this new system and, you know, the shaoshu Minzu, the minority people. Going back to the Han dynasty had always been a little mistrustful of these ethnic Hans, always trying to get a piece of them. So Deng Xiaoping really had his work cut out for him, trying to bring all these tribes and different mixtures of people into the PRC fold. But, you know, he did it. And of course, the big gimme out of all this, as far as the Lao Xing were concerned, was land. They had nothing to lose, and so supported the efforts of the first and second field armies of the communists. Now they had won, and nothing will placate a peasant more than their very own plot of land to Till. Deng was also ultimately in charge of this, too. And let's just say that land reform in the southwest from 49 onwards was carried out vigorously, and enthusiastically. You know, basically down at that level, whoever had it good under the old system were ending up with bullets in the back of their heads. And, of course, the appropriate amounts of flesh had been extracted. Man, 1948-49 into the early 50s, if you were a landlord, rich or poor, if any peasants had any scores whatsoever to settle with you, This was a terrible time. This will be a podcast for later. A lot of these things we discussed today, I'm just trying to present it in the context of Deng Xiaoping's life, but we'll come back another day to delve deeper into the goings-on during the initial years after liberation. So land reform was carried out, and as far as this podcast was concerned, if any landlords wanted mercy from Deng Xiaoping, they got none. The extreme southwest of China is where you'll find Xi what we in the English-speaking world known as Tibet. Today, Tibet is an autonomous region of the PRC, but in 1949, when Deng was sent down there to put things in order, Tibet was sort of independent and on their own. After all, with everything that was going on down in China since the fall of the Qing dynasty, the leaders in Tibet took stock of the situation and had it uh, be known that they were their own guys from now on. Tibetan sovereignty over the centuries had from time to time been somewhat vague. This is where Deng Xiaoping came in. In addition to all the tasks he had to deal with pacifying the southwest, Tibet figured prominently. Well, this didn't go down too well with the new leaders of the PRC, who had always had their sights on Tibet. We're not going to get into the details today of all the political aspects of Tibet and this whole hot-button issue of were they or were they not part of China. For the purposes of today's podcast, it's important to know Tibet had broken away and intended to be their own man from here on out. Although Tibet's leaders at the time were making all this noise about Tibetan sovereignty... Mao had other ideas, and he still had over a million troops to back up what he said. And these communist soldiers were still fresh from all the hard-won battles of the just-completed Civil War. Much of 1950 was spent negotiating how to deal with the issue, but one year and one week after Mao declared the founding of the PRC, the Chinese army invaded Tibet from the east. So, marching into Tibet in 1950 and 1951 and seizing control and quashing any organized resistance wasn't going to be too hard. And it wasn't. Forces led by Deng and Liu Bocheng, as well as He Long, were able to easily pacify the area. This was like a classic Turkey shoot, and the Tibetan forces didn't stand a chance. And if you thought the Qing dynasty was backward, the Tibetan military, let's say, you know, left a lot to be desired. Attempts were made to negotiate, but the Tibetan representative's negotiating position was hardly a strong one. And so, on May 23rd, 1952, the 17-point agreement was signed, which assured Chinese sovereignty over Tibet. By 1952, it was a clear case of mission accomplished for Deng Xiaoping. Taking care of a job well done even further enhanced Deng's chops within the party, And the government. And once the central government felt secure enough, they called the heads of these bureaus back to Beijing. And in July of 1952, Deng Xiaoping, Zhuolin, and their family of five children moved to Beijing. But before he went back, he did officiate at the opening of the Chongqing Chengdu Railway, a practical engineering project that brought a capacious amount of convenience to the people of Sichuan in general and to the local economies of these two biggest cities in the province. Now, maybe Deng himself didn't pound any rails into the ground, but it was a very important project that, like almost everything else there at the time, was attributed to Deng's vision and practical sense. So he heads back to the capital. Last time he was there, the PRC was only just formally established. Deng Xiaoping was now made a vice-premier of the Government Administrative Council, which later morphed into the State Council. He was also named to the Central Financial Commission and then Minister of Finance. So, in 1952, a new phase in the life of Deng Xiaoping had begun. There was still a whole bunch of nation-building and whatnot to go yet, but as far as restoring China's dignity in the world and setting the country on a new course... Deng Xiaoping in the 1930s and 40s played a very significant role, along with so many others, in making this happen. So Deng had proved to be good at his job when it involved this dangerous life of a guerrilla fighter, communist organizer, always on the run, you know, being a propaganda specialist during wartime. He showed he was good at his job when it came to fighting a revolution. Now... He and all the leaders, except the generals, had to take off their military uniforms and put on civilian clothes and build on what was still a very, very shaky foundation. And remember, when Deng was down in the southwest of China and in Tibet, the Korean War was raging full blast. So these are really intense roller coaster years for China, the early 50s. So now, in 1952, in the midst of China's heavy involvement in the Korean War, Deng Xiaoping is a vice premier and one of the top leaders in China. Mao Zedong is the paramount leader, of course, the Zui Gao Lingdao, but he's surrounded by men who, time and again, when it counted, prove their worth and their loyalty to Mao. And in the next episode, we'll pick up in 1952 and maybe take Deng's life up to 1965 or 1966 when the Cultural Revolution starts and Deng's life gets turned upside down. So I hope you'll listen next time as we trace the life of one of China's greatest leaders going back 4,000 years for show. And so, from the com, this is your humblest of narrators, Laszlo Montgomery, signing off from a cold and rainy Claremont, California, here on the outer edges of Los Angeles County. I think we still have a minimum of two, but perhaps maybe three more episodes before we can complete this overview of the life of Deng Xiaoping. So join us next week, won't you, for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast. Thanks for listening.